Now you look at the BioNTech partnership, you know, clearly they had the technology platform. They brought assets to the table that we didn't have. We brought assets to the table, capabilities to the table that they didn't have. You put the two companies together and you see what the results are relative to the vaccine, the speed of the vaccine, the volume of the vaccine, the delivery of the vaccine. I don't think either of us could have accomplished um, on our own what the two of us accomplished, have accomplished together. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Frank DeMelio, the CFO of Pfizer, setting the scene for how his company went about addressing the most urgent and massive challenge in its history, developing a vaccine for COVID-19. Today, Frank will tell us how Pfizer, working in partnership with BioNTech, managed to accomplish that feat in record-breaking time, helping to alleviate the biggest global health crisis in living memory. He speaks with Rodney Zemmel, a senior partner in our New York office, during a virtual event we recently hosted for the CFOs of large global organizations. Now, here's Rodney. My great pleasure to introduce uh, Pfizer CFO Frank D'Amelio. Frank has been CFO of Pfizer for 14 years, which I confess is a a statistic that made me feel old when I looked it up, because I remember the trepidation around the company on the day he arrived after a five or six year tenure at Alcatel-Lucent before that. His role as CFO there has been legendary. He has led one of the most significant acquisition and divestiture programs of uh, many companies in many industries, uh, Wyeth, Hospira, divesting animal health, creating the new company from spinning out their uh, established health, uh, established products business, just really bringing capital allocation and financial discipline to the company has allowed Pfizer to completely remake itself uh, over the last uh, decade and a half. While that in itself is a very uh, exciting and very important story, there's this little story of the last 12 months that I have a feeling you're going to be interested in, uh, which is the story of uh, of the vaccine development. So with that, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Frank. Good morning, good day, everyone. I'm delighted to be here with everybody. It's our pleasure. The world knows the story, right? Eight months from setting the goal to achieving a a, a staggering 95.6% efficacy. And my number's probably out of date, but I have it as more than 300 million doses delivered within the first six months. So what what, what stands out most for you? What what are the key decisions along the way that made a difference? I think first and foremost was just the absolute dedication and commitment of our colleagues. What people have to understand is, right, the pandemic starts in March of 2020, from day one, our, our manufacturing employees never missed a beat in terms of getting into the facilities and making all the medicines that people around the world need. Same thing with our R&D folks in the labs. I think next would be just, and you touched on this, Rodney, what we did was a medical miracle. I mean, the fastest a vaccine was ever done in was, what, four years? On average, a vaccine is eight to 10 years. We did this in eight to nine months literally a medical miracle. And I think part of how we did it or part of why we did it is as soon as the pandemic broke, our CEO, Albert Borla, called in his executive leadership team. So his direct report team, of which I'm a member. And he literally looked at all of us and said, if not us, who? If we aren't going to solve this pandemic, who will? 
We all kind of, you know, almost like an athletic team, right? We all put our hands in the middle of the room and basically, you know, put them all together and said, okay, we're all about getting this done. And that really drove our behavior throughout the whole process. That was really extraordinary. And, you know, for me personally, literally when people were coming to me looking for funds, I'm pretty tough on capital. I never looked at a business case. It was just go get it done. And listen, it's not what I want to do going forward. But, you know, we were in emergency mode, all hands on deck. We put $2 billion of capital at risk. We didn't take a dollar of government money. We just thought that we needed to solve this. Time was of the essence. And obviously, when, when you engage partners, partners have opinions and it could slow down the process. So we clearly didn't want to do anything that could potentially slow down the process. So everything we did was at risk. And like I said, it was really extraordinary effort. And maybe the last thing, just I always like to use some numbers because numbers tell stories, right? If, if you look at our vaccine business, and we have a very large vaccine franchise. The vaccine everybody knows is Prevnar. You know, it's a five, six billion dollar annual uh, franchise. We've been in a vaccine business 20 years. Last year, 2020, all in with our Prevnar vaccine and then all of our other vaccines, our meningitis vaccine, our tick-borne encephalitis vaccine, we made 200 million doses. This year, we'll make, and this is the first year of the COVID vaccine, we'll make at least 2.5 billion doses. But I think we assumed success right from day one. We spent almost $700 million in CapEx. I looked at you know, lots of requests coming in. I never looked at a business case. We just go, spend the money, get it done. You know, by the way, a vaccine, you get a 70% or better overall efficacy. That's a good result, right? I mean, 70% more overall efficacy is a good result. We got a 95% efficacy. So we knocked the cover off the ball in terms of the results of the trials. But I was seeing it along the way. And obviously, I was monitoring it. And I was looking at all the actual spend, where we were spending it. You know, was there anything we could do to, to be more efficient in the spend? But in terms of, you know, approving spend, I was approving all the spend. And fortunately, in retrospect, that turned out to be a good decision. I wouldn't have looked forward to getting in front of the board and talking about, you know, hey, we just got a billion dollars in sunk costs. And I'm going to be writing off another billion dollars in PP&E and um in you know, an inventory that we're never going to sell. So, Not us who, that's terrifically inspiring. But what happened before that, if not us who moment, that enabled you know, the success of this year? Right? So what, what are the things that you did previously that, that allowed you to do so well, both in the development and in the production ramp-up to an R billion doses? Maybe I'll, cu- I'll touch on a couple of things. I think first was... Um, our purpose-driven agenda. That if you look, you know, Albert came in, he's been the CEO now for about two and a half years. One of the first things Albert did was our purpose-driven agenda. And if you think about what's our purpose? Breakthroughs that change patients' lives. Can you think of anything we could have ever done more than the COVID vaccine that was a breakthrough that changed patients' lives? We have five major objectives within the agenda. Things like delivering first-in-class science, Once again, the COVID vaccine clearly being not only best in class, but first in class science. I think maybe a couple of other things, but one is we had some real challenges with our manufacturing and supply organization several years ago. I think we've done a really nice job of dramatically improving the productivity of that organization. We did a lot of investing to improve some of the infrastructure, 30 metrics for each plant, about 18 operational, 12 financial. Every single plant has them implemented IMEX in all of our facilities. So we did a bunch of things to really, I think, 
get the manufacturing capabilities in Alcoa tip-top shape, we've obviously added lines. We've added, you know, we've been able to get more runs per week, more yield per run, higher output per, you know, per yield in terms of the quality of the yield. I mean, so, you know, we're humming now in our factories. Then we've added contract manufacturers. We've added suppliers. We brought some stuff we were getting from suppliers, some of the key lipids in-house. So we've done lots of things like that to really continue to increase our output. In order to add lines, you need space. And it's not like, you know, I've got all this kind of empty space hanging around my manufacturing facilities. So one of the things that we did is we obviously did a lot of advanced building on medicines where I call it, they have a long shelf life. When you're advanced building, I'm deploying capital, right? Because I'm building inventory. I'm I'm building finished goods inventory, putting it on a shelf so I could free up that space to be able to convert it to a line that can make the vaccine. So we did a lot of that uh, medicines that have a long shelf life and where I know that demand's going to be there. And then knowing we were going to have to put the vaccine, the vaccine lines in those places, we've actually been working with CMOs to have the ability for that to be outsourced. And one of the other things we've done is we've really created a lot more redundant manufacturing um, capabilities as a result of the pandemic for these kinds of reasons. You know, we have good relationships with CMOs. You know, I have relationships with all the top CMOs and contract manufacturers in the world. And so we really leveraged our, our, call it our global network. And then I think we did the same thing in R&D. You know, you go back, you go back 10, 12 years ago, our R&D productivity left a lot to be desired. You look at our R&D productivity now, our late stage pipeline is the best it's been in years. And we took a lot of actions to get there, changing the metrics that we used to a determined comp, creating centers of excellence, closing some R&D facilities that hadn't created a medicine in a decade, bringing in some key people from outside the company. Maybe one interesting metric, and then I'll stop. You look at our delivery performance on the COVID vaccine, our accuracy is 99.99%. Make sure I say that again, 99.99% accuracy in terms of getting those vaccines, where they need to go and when they need to get. Maybe Rodney, one other real tangible example, you know, if you ever see Albert when he gives a presentation, whether it's to the board or, you know, an external group, one of his first or two or, you know, first couple of slides is always about the number of patients we served. You know, this many people were vaccinated. This many people got our oncology a vaccine. This many people received this. And so the acute focus on patients, it always starts with uh, how we talk about results. Our most important result is the impact we're having on patients. And the financial translation, right, the better we serve patients, the better we serve our shareholders, right? Operational cause equals financial effect, right? So serving our patients is the operational cause. The impact of that is obviously the benefit to our shareholders, which is the financial effect. So let's talk about the rest of that agenda of serving your shareholders. So over the course of the last year, right, although the vaccine's been the only thing the press has talked about, it's been far from the only thing that Pfizer has done. So how have you balanced your effort, whether it was capital, whether it was people, whether it was management time on the on the vaccine efforts while we're successfully running the rest of the company? So I think first, one of the privileges of being the CFO of Pfizer is we're a big company. We generate a lot of operating cash flow, a lot of free cash flow. So it wasn't like somehow I had to make capital trade-offs for the COVID vaccine. It was all I'm going to call it. It was an and, not an or. And when I was looking at the projections 
that we would um, generate in terms of COVID revenues this year, it was pretty clear to me that was going to th- translate into an awful lot of operating cash flow. That was a, a kind of above and beyond what I had planned for. If you look at our last earnings call, we guided on our, our COVID revenues for the year, we guided to $26 billion. You know, you look at our revenues last year, we're almost $42 billion, $41.9 billion. This year, this product alone, one product first year, $26 billion already in terms of the guidance. Just think about that relative to the entire company last year. So your vaccine program is a partnership, right? And obviously, you're a company who's had many, many partnerships. What are your lessons on alliances and deal making and so on in the context of, a, of an incredibly fascinating initiative like this one? One of the things I always say inside the company is many of the best deals are no deal. It's easy to do deals. It's hard to do deals that create value for our shareholders. Now, in terms of, you know, BioNTech and deal making, one plus one equals more than two. A good deal is like a good marriage. And what do I mean? Two people together can accomplish what neither could accomplish on their own. Well, that's how I think about a good deal. Two companies together can accomplish what what neither could accomplish on their own. You know, the biggest deal we've done since I've been here was the Wyatt deal. $69 billion deal. We did that in 09. The capital markets were imploding. We used our balance sheet back then as a competitive advantage to get the financing. We raised $23 billion when there were no capital markets, right? There were literally no capital markets back then. The markets were closed. You know, you think about that transaction, clearly those two companies, Pfizer and Wyatt together, I think have been able to accomplish what neither could have accomplished on their own. Now you look at the BioNTech partnership, you know, clearly they had the technology platform they brought assets to the table that we didn't have. We brought assets to the table, capabilities to the table that they didn't have. You put the two companies together and you see what the results are relative to the vaccine, the speed of the vaccine, the volume of the vaccine, the delivery of the vaccine. I don't think either of us could have accomplished um, on our own what the two of us accomplished, have accomplished together. It was very interesting to see how the industry in the early days of this came together on both the drug discovery end of it, but also on the, the, the vaccine manufacturing end of it. And that was kind of within the pharmaceutical industry, how are we helping each other? But we've been collaborating along the way. Just so you know, I manufacture and severe for Gilead. I mean, you see Merck manufacturing vaccines for J&J. I mean, there's been lots of collaboration in terms of, you know, as an industry, trying to really just work together to do everything we can to help patients. But let me actually um, take a slightly different direction for a moment. I'll ask you about digital, right? And I'm going to define digital broadly as being digital, advanced analytics, and technology. What role did that play in your success here? And uh, and how, how do you see its role playing out over the next few years in this area? So digital played a key role, Rodney. I think you know we've been investing in our IT infrastructure significantly for the past decade. You know, we've got digital now and very much deployed throughout manufacturing. We've got digital capabilities very much deployed in our R&D trials, right, in terms of machine learning being applied, even in terms of how we try to identify patients with a product like Vindiquil for cardiomyopathy, where we're using machine learning, artificial intelligence to try to better identify people who have cardiomyopathy, very difficult indication to diagnose if you're a doctor. Let me mention the cold chain. So we developed these thermal shippers that we ship the vaccines in. They're about the size of a suitcase, a piece of luggage, 81 pounds if it's filled with um, five trays. Each tray holds 
called it 1,200 doses of the, of, the, um, of the vaccine, 195 vials. We fill them up with dry ice. We put the vaccines in. Those vaccines will stay good in that thermal shipper. If you renew the dry ice every week for like, a, replace the dry ice for about 30 days, that thermal shipper has GPS technology in it where we're literally tracking that, that, uh, that container literally from the time it leaves our site to the time it gets to the vaccination site. By the way, if it goes out of, I'll call it range, the range is plus or minus 10 degrees. As soon as it goes out of range, that thing's on its way back and a new thermal shipper with the vaccine, with the vaccines is on its way to the new site. I mean, this is all happening in real time. And remember, we're, we're shipping to individual sites. We're not going to the big distributors to do this, right? So it's usually complicated. Now, I, I can't imagine us doing, that, doing this without leveraging technology, without leveraging, without leveraging digital. Well, if you go back a few months, right, minus 70 degrees, everyone was talking about it as if that was the Achilles heel in the strategy here. Like, how will they ever manage to get this thing distributed? And, you know, and even if they can, it's going to destroy the economics. How did that come about with your, with your finance hats on, recognizing you didn't look at any business cases during this time? So obviously, to just punctuate your point, the cold chain, which everybody was concerned about initially, has literally been a non-event. So what happened is the manufacturing team is working with our pharmaceutical science organization. They recognize that this is going to be a frozen formulation and that in order for it to be effective, it's going to need to be transported at minus 70 degrees. So what did the manufacturing team do? They do what they always do. They get to work. And they start figuring out, okay, how do you basically maintain a minus 70 degree temperature for a vaccine and then get that all over the United States, get it to Alaska, get it to Hawaii, get it to American Samoa, get it to Guam, get it to all these other places that it needs to get to if you're in the U.S. And we realized pretty quickly we needed something that was durable, that would, I call it, be able to contain, you know, dry ice, because the only way to keep it cold is with dry ice. The manufacturing team literally designed a thermal shipper. By the way, when the, when, the, when the site is done with the thermal shipper, we ask for it to be returned. They can be reused. It's my CFO hat, Rodney, in terms of, you know, right. saving money on the, on the reuse of the thermal shippers. Our return rate is about 75 to 80%. But it was really, I'll call it the, the creativity, the ingenuity of the manufacturing, the manufacturing organization. Let's turn our lens to the finance function, right? Because you're obviously leading an enormous global finance function during this, this time period with, with the two jobs of developing and delivering the vaccine and running the company. What was it like leading a finance function during the, during the pandemic? And how, how, how were you able to do it? You know, when you were introducing me, you know, you were talking about the number of years I've been a CFO. I've been a CFO now for almost 20 years. But at least for me, Leading the finance function during the pandemic, for me, was just remarkable. And I, we did things virtually that I just wasn't sure could ever get done. In fact, it isn't clear to me there isn't anything we can't do virtually. We can close the books you know, every month and then obviously the quarter close. We can do our earnings calls. We can do our audit committee meetings. We can do our board meetings. We can have our analyst meetings. We can do our rating agency meetings, our bank meetings. We can have our annual shareholder meetings. Now, do I think, you know, we want to be virtual uh, indefinitely to perpetuity? No, I don't think it'll be what it was before the pandemic. I also think, by the way, Rodney, all the IT investment that we had done over the years, I think in retrospect, 
has served us really well during the pandemic. And I came in 07. You know, when I came and he looked at the IT environment, it was a mishmash because the company had done a couple of very large acquisitions. And quite frankly, none of the systems had been integrated. Fast forward today, we've got a very integrated, very, very integrated systems environment. When we do do an acquisition, we bolt them in very quickly. So, you know, I think all the work we did to really improve our our system environment, our IT environment, has really served us well um, during the pandemic. Then maybe just one or two other comments with my CFO had. So going forward now, you know, I'm already messaging. I'm expecting T&E expense to come down dramatically. You know, one of the things we've learned is all this travel that we think we need to do, we don't need to do. And in a company our size, you know, get 80,000 people, we spend lots of money on T&E. There's lots we can save and drop right to the bottom line um, by, by you know, really coming back and reducing our, our travel and entertainment expense and real estate. I think one of the other things we're going to be doing is really relooking at our real estate because it's also obvious we don't need as much real estate as we have as a result of the pandemic. So I think there's some real permanent changes to how we deploy capital, where I think as the CFO, we have real nice opportunities to save some real money going forward that you know we've learned as a result of the pandemic. And I think one of the other things we've learned is, you know, in, in, uh, in pharma, you know, we talk about detailing, reps getting in front of docs. And I think going forward, what you'll see is much more of a hybrid model. And I think the doctors have gotten more comfortable with this over the pandemic. I think our reps have gotten more comfortable with this over the pandemic. Frank, over 20 years of CFO, I'm sure you're a very different person, a different kind of leader now relative to uh, when you started. But over the last 18 months, what's the biggest lesson that you uh, you think you've learned personally? You know, in terms of science, I'm simply absolutely amazed at what can be done. I said we literally accomplished a medical miracle. When it comes to science and what we're able to do for patient drugs, I think literally almost nothing is impossible. And it makes me feel just incredibly optimistic about kind of where the puck is going in our industry and what we're going to be able to do for patients. So by the way, if our chief scientist was here and he was doing this call, Michael Dolstein, who I admire in terms of just how brilliant he is and what he does, he would sit here and say, he doesn't believe that my kids are going to die from cancer. That, you know, that they have the ability to live to be 125 years old and live literally a healthy life to 125 years old. So I just think when you think about how long we're going to live versus how long our grandparents live and what we look like when we're 60 years old versus what they looked like when they were 60 years old and all the, the disease that we've already eradicated in the world. And then you just talk about what our science and where it's taking us. And you look at, you know, gene therapy, you look at mRNA technology, genetics, you look at all of these things. I'm just incredibly optimistic. And just what, what's life going to be like for our kids and our grandkids? That's terrific. And, uh, you know, you absolutely did knock the cover off the ball in the clinical trials. But we know that for the, the global pandemic, uh, we're still uh, in the relatively early, early innings uh, in some countries. It's terrific to see the progress that's now being made as production continues to ramp up. So, Frank, thank you. This has been uh, really, really our, our privilege to have you as our, as our guest here on this. Thank you, Roddy. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And everyone have a wonderful day and stay healthy. Thanks to Rodney and Frank for this fascinating discussion. And thank you to everyone for listening today. We hope you enjoyed it. 
The transcript of this conversation will be made available on our Inside the Strategy Room page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. And if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the Inside the Strategy Room collection page, again at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us by searching for McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.